Now on Food FM, it's a new series with Arthur Potts Dawson, The Coffee Table. First of all, a word from our sponsors. Founded in 1927 by Giuseppe and Bruno Bambi, La Mazzocco had its beginnings in Florence, Italy, birthplace of the Italian Renaissance. It seems only fitting that La Mazzocco would earn a world-renowned reputation for making beautiful, high-quality, superbly crafted and uniquely designed espresso machines with great attention to detail. Even today, highly specialised personnel supervise each stage in the production of every single machine, handcrafted to order for each and every client, from the kitchen counter to the speciality coffee bar. The Coffee Table on Food FM with La Mazzocco. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hi, I'm Arthur Potts Dawson. Uh, this is Food FM, and we are at the coffee table once again. I'm super excited to be talking about almost the 1940s, maybe into the 1950s. We've got Marco Arrigo, co-host of the coffee table. Hi, Marco. Hi, Arthur. How are you? I'm very good. And we've got Jonathan, Jonathan Morris here, uh, who's written Coffee, a Global History, and also has a podcast called A History of Coffee. So, Jonathan, you know everything there is to know about coffee and the history of it. Absolutely. And what I'm looking forward to today is some Italian coffee from Marco, because I really love Italian coffee. Marco, I've known you for nearly 30 years, and I've seen you make coffee all over this country. And for me, you're the best coffee maker. And you're standing there with a, a, a very fashionable pose, right hand on one of the levers of a double handled legend coffee machine. Tell me a little bit about this coffee machine, because can you make us a coffee? I mean, Jonathan, what kind of coffee would you like? The funny thing is, Jonathan is the expert on this machine. He wrote the thesis on it. Well, I've written about it, but you know, you are the expert in using it. Oh. And uh, you're going to make me a macchiato, please. Macchiato. So Jonathan wants a macchiato. I'm going to have, please, a long macchiato, almost like a sort of... You're going to get what I'm given. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting what I'm given. <laughs> so, Marco, tell me, so you've got a... You've got a, a what, what is this machine? This is, a, if you look at the history of coffee machines, this is like the third picture that pops up. Mm. And this is a really drastic change in coffee machines. This is when coffee machines went into the bars and started the whole culture of coffee in Italy. Um, before these, the machines were clunky and the, the boilers were vertical and there's all sorts of different things going on which wasn't working as well. And this particular, the, the, the Feynman legend, is just one of those ones in the history books. It was the first machine. It's a really clever machine where as it heats up, the water expands and it, and it turns, goes to the heads and then it cools down and it goes back to the boiler. So it was, almost has this natural blood flow running through the machine where it's, where it's, it, it's moving the water. So, so tell me how you're going to make this macchiato for Jonathan. I like to do it the old-fashioned Italian way of making coffee was to sort of froth the milk first and then make the coffee which I've always been completely against but when it comes to making a macchiato it's a lovely trick to do is to do the milk first and to let the milk split and we deliberately want the milk to split so what I'm going to do before I even touch the coffee I'm going to I'm going to put the milk on and I want to froth the milk and I want to get it in the fridge. And there's a, there's a really nice trick with a macchiato is to froth the milk like normal. And so this is the, the only time we froth the milk. And we do, we do the milk exactly the same way as if we were doing latte art or whatever. We froth the milk beautifully. Um, I want to get it really shiny. I want to, I've got the steam wand a little bit deeper in the milk. I don't want to see any bubbles. My hand's on the jug. I can't touch it any longer, so I know it's exactly at the right temperature. So, Marco, you had your hand at the base of this metal jug. The metal jug is now, you've got the milk. Okay, I see it. So it's quite shiny, the milk. Not yet. No, not shiny. If you shiny. look down on it now, one, two, 
three. Now it's shiny. Do you see the change? Right. So what did you do there? You bang the air out of so the milk. So before, it was like a brick wall where every single bubble was a different size, a big bubbles and small. So light doesn't pass through, so it won't be shiny. But as soon as you bang the jug and burst all the big bubbles and then spin it round, and then all the bubbles become the same size, you've got indices between the bubbles. Mm. And that's what makes the shine. And it's working, texturing that milk. Right, yeah. As soon as we've textured it, we stick it in the fridge. Huh. And this is going to shorten all the proteins. All the proteins are going to be shocked and they're going to shorten really quickly and we want that milk to deliberately split. This was always a problem. We're going to use it as a solution. We're going to do this deliberately to, to, to skim off the really nice foam for your macchiato. Oh, you Marco, to... Marco's the coffee wizard. Look, he's putting hot milk into a cold fridge. He's now grinding coffee to be the perfect amount in the coffee handle. What are you doing there, Marco? So this is your flat white, which yeah. is going to be a naked handle. And it's a big shot of coffee. It's almost 19, 20 grams of coffee. And this is a handle that's got the bottom chopped off it so we can see what's coming out. Right, and so. if you look up from underneath, you'll see the coffee start to come from the middle because I've used a, a, a curved tamper. And so it's going to start dripping from the middle. Look how beautiful that black is the actual coffee. It's like treacle dripping out through a flat bottomed coffee handle. And it's just drip, drip, dripping it almost looks like honey would drip out of a honeycomb it's incredibly viscous at this point and the black 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 is all the lipids and the colloids and the fats that's in the coffee and the darker the, the the coffee the more of the oil it is and as it starts to run you see it all come together now in the middle and it starts to lighten up and and all of a sudden it goes quiet yeah, and it also, also goes creamy look it's gone from this dark black to almost almost orange mm. So now it's almost silent because it's oil. It's oil and water. Oil and water doesn't want to mix. So there's your base for your flat white there. Oh. Let's get the base on. Remember, I've made the milk already and thrown it in the fridge. So now all I've got to do is make the base for the macchiato. And so this is Jonathan's, Jonathan's macchiato. Yeah. Same, same process. You've got it in a different handle, though. Yeah, I'm making two here because I'm... Uh, we're going to have a couple of macchiatos. I'm going to share one. And I've got the, the double handle, the old fashioned handle. And here I've put about 16, 17 grams of coffee. And it's going to go very, very slowly and make my two macchiato bases. Now, while this is happening, we're going to get the milk out of the fridge and split it. You can do this incredibly slowly on this machine. It will never And we see the coffee is just drip, drip, dripping out of each side of this what you would think is a sort of classic coffee handle with a sort of spout either side into two little shot glasses. And Marco's got the milk out of the fridge. What are you doing with this milk, Marco? Oh, look at this milk. This is more, this is, it's, it's easier to teach you, a tr it's easier to trick you than to teach you sometimes. And so by shortening all that, look how quickly the milk separates from the, from the foam. So you're pouring the milk that you put into the fridge quickly out of the jug and then the liquid milk is pouring out of the bottom and then in the same jug you've got basically foam left over. So we just separated the foam from the milk. Now, in the macchiato, we do the macchiatos first here. Marco's shaking the, the original and we make this frothed milk vigorously, and he's pouring the tiniest bit of cream out into the tiny little shot glass. This is fantastic. Please tune in to our Food FM photographs. We've got a photographer here taking pictures of this because it's just gorgeous. Look at it. It's almost like liquid snow. Amazing. Oh, with a little top on it. Wow. And now for your flat white, I will yep. need a bit more milk with that foam. He's pouring a little bit more milk back into 
and this is a You're lovely original. way of working nobody works like this but i like to i like to separate my foam take my foam out put my foam back in the jug as each drink i make i can put the right amount of foam or milk into the jug this is probably a bit foamy for a flat white but it's an italian flat white gorgeous this looks fantastic so i've got layers of coffee I've got dark black treacle on the bottom it's sort of I don't even want to stir it, Marco. I'd like to drink this sort of snowy white capped macchiato. You're telling me to stir this, Marco, are you? Yeah, your eyes will just get an, a, 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 a tennis ball of air in your mouth, and then you're going to get this hot, bitter coffee at the bottom. Mix them together. Okay, I'll stir. You want the air? You want to aerate the Jonathan, coffee. can you describe the coffee that you've got in front of you? Yeah, well, this is lovely. Actually, this looks like a fantastic Guinness, doesn't it? Because we've got a nice dark shot of coffee and then we've got this nice long little uh, head on it but the whole thing is in one shot glass so this uh, Marco this must be a ristretto this is not an espresso right I mean how much liquid volume yeah. is there of coffee in that it's a very small one yes that is a ristretto I mean this is almost a Napolitan ristretto it's that that good cheers mate cheers so I drank mine already and Arthur's got a biscuit mm. now's not the time for me to talk because I'm just about to drink this delicious coffee well, Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit about this machine that Marco's using? Because obviously he's the sort of the wizard at using the machine. But I yeah. think you know quite a lot about this machine, don't you? Yeah, well, this is the E61. Uh, it's a Fiema E61, so uh, made in 1961. And um, the great thing about this is it really changed the way that we make espresso coffee and also the way that we develop an Italian coffee bar. Indeed, it is what makes an Italian coffee bar. So what's it about? It's um, got three big features to it, I would say. The first is that it has an electric pump. So up until this point, everyone who was making coffee, espresso coffee, in order to get the pressure, would have to manually pump over, you know, like a bar, like a, like a beer pump, pull it down. This, you've got a pump, electric pump, that will do all that for you. Just do it with an on and off switch. Second thing you've got in there is a heat exchanger. Uh, until that point, all the coffee that was being made by um, espresso machines was being you, you took the hot water for the coffee direct out of the boiler and the problem with that is that your boiler becomes very um, unstable and you don't um, have the chance to keep delivering the coffee so as a result of that you've got this this heat exchanger just brings the water in just like your washing machine comes straight in from the tap goes through the heat exchanger uh, and straight into the um, what we call the group head so you don't have to ever worry about heating the water up or mucking around with the water. And the third thing that Marco talked about, the blood of it, one of the uh, great features of this machine is it's got a very sophisticated uh, system that keeps the temperature on that group head constant by playing with the amount of hot water and cold water that's putting around it in a little circuit. So all of these things make it a very, very stable machine. And the result of all that is this is what we would call, it's not necessarily the first semi-automatic machine but it's the first semi-automatic machine that works and it's the first continuous delivery machine and that means you could stand there day after day making coffee after coffee without having to turn the machine on and off without having to wait for the machine to get ready so that means one guy someone like a marco who can stand there with his steam arms around him can just stand there all day in his little coffee bar on his own and do everything and never be interrupted and that makes the Italian coffee bar possible that's the way we know it today however <laughs> I wouldn't like to be on that machine if I'm too busy and this is where we've evolved 
to this current day where mm. the machines have now started to become a lot more technical and dual boiler and much, much higher production. And uh, it's a great machine, but it's limited. It's limited but, to how much you can make. But we're talking now, so we have spent the first two episodes looking at the history of coffee and the evolution of coffee from plant, from where it originated, it's traveled around the world and it's made its way into coffee houses. It's been banned, it's been let back in, mm. it's been adulterated. But now we are, for example, we're in London in the 1950s, Marco. Mm. And this type of machine has liberated the coffee bar owner. Is that right? No. No, because I want to say this is, uh, this is the next step machine. The machine that changed London's coffee scene was the Gadger machine. That's the one that we all think about, isn't it? Gadger. Yeah. And Gadger is the first guy who brings in the high pressure. So Gadger's great development is to bring in high pressure, 9 to 12 bars of pressure, mm. using this manually operated spring. Marco, you must have used one of these things. They're a hell of a weight, aren't they? They're lovely. They're lovely to use. What, what I love about the piston machines is each one has got its own character and you learn how to drive that one and some of them you need to pull the handle down count to one second let it go up halfway pull it down again and then let it finish and some of them you pull it down and let it go up and, and you've got to be so careful it doesn't catch you on the chin you can take all your teeth out in one in one movement um, and they're, they're, they're incredibly you know, they'll literally take on your mood. I mean, if you're in a bad mood, you're going to make bad coffee. I mean, it's so physical. It's so connected to how you're doing. You are pulling the lever down and the speed at which you pull it and the speed at which you let it return affects the volume in the cup and the, the pressure that's pushed through the water. So it's very, very, very much around you. It slightly reminds me of the barmaid or the barman in the old pub pulling yeah. that. You know, that's exactly what it was. Pushing, pulling, pushing, pulling. And like I say, the 1950s, uh, the Soho Coffee House has evolved in London. And from that, does it create a coffee culture that we more or less recognise now? Or was it something new, fresh, that, that has changed? Uh, well, this is going to be interesting because Marco and I will probably have different views on this. I think it creates the foundation for something, but that goes away. You know, this is a moment, this is a fad. And what's different between now and then is that the, the later, what we have now has lasted so long. What happened with the original thing is it's about 10 year time. And I think it's a very considered time. It's not really so much about the coffee. It's about the coffee in the sense that it's fun and it's theatrical and it's, it's kind of, you know, great to watch. But actually the coffee itself is a pretty small part of what makes the Soho coffee bars so interesting. They're really places where young people go to hang out. They're where they can play the jukeboxes. They do all the things. And this sounds weird. They do all the things they can't do in the pub because it's full of old geezers like me and you drinking our beer. Thanks, you know, Jonathan. You're very welcome. Yeah. But, you know, I feel that we should be inclusive in the show, <laughs> Arthur. And, you know, there we go. But so it's it's a very considered moment. It's when the teenager, in it, if you like, when the teenagers, when the, the young kids start getting into the West End and doing their old thing. Now, on the coffee front of it, you could say what's really interesting is it parallels on the coffee front. What are they drinking at home when they're drinking coffee? They're drinking a whole new thing. What is it? Instant coffee. Mm. You know, so this is the same time we're getting gadger in Soho. We're getting instant coffee in the home. But, you know, I've I've read about but this, Marco. Your, your, um, people have told you all about this. So what do you think about Soho that time? It's a different time. You know, my mum was there and she told me all about it. But 
it's a, it's a it's um it's an interesting time it's also the era it's also the fact that you know up until this point you know children teenagers were just little adult adults they dressed the same as the parents and they did the same things as the parents and this era came in it's funny that jonathan says they were drinking nescafe at home well they were still drinking robusta or out of the gadgets this is the same cheap quality bean that's being made in two different ways soluble and ground these kids were going into the um coffee shops in soho because they couldn't get into pubs they were they were underage but you could drink this strong robusta till late at night and rock and roll had hit soho they suddenly kids were becoming uh, teenagers and they were rebelling against their parents and they were staying up all night drinking robusta coffee I mean, it's a seriously strong uh, kick of caffeine. They weren't allowed to drink alcohol and they were going to all these different places in Soho that were up all night playing live music. And so it was it was a cultural phenomenon. It was a cultural thing that went on. It wasn't just about the commodity of the coffee. It doesn't matter. Maybe they were drinking orange juice and tea as well. Mm. You know, I, I've always kind of said, if you want to taste that coffee, go to Bar Italia. Bar mm. Italia is still making that coffee. Mm. And, and, you know, lots of lots of sort of coffee connoisseurs will now spit that coffee on the floor. But I think you should appreciate it for a little museum in time oh, where you can still yeah. dip back yeah. and taste how the bad the coffee was back then almost. Oh, I <laughs> love Bar Italia. Stuff. I won't hear anybody say anything about mm. Bar Italia. I've been there late night, early mm. morning. It saves me sometimes when I'm mm. off to a shift in the kitchens early morning or coming out late at night and, and needing a kick before mm. I uh, need to go out partying. Yeah, I mean, Bar Italia isn't... I mean, what, how long has Bar Italia been there? Since 1949, I think, yeah. something like that. So it's just... It's in the, it's in the late 40s. Mm. So actually, the, the interesting thing is Bar Italia is not the first place to get uh, an espresso machine. Mm. So the first espresso bar is opened in 52, and it's the Mocha Bar. And uh, the Mocha Bar gets its gadget machine, but the, the proprietor of the Mocha Bar is a guy called Morris Ross, who's actually sort of, you know, Scots guy in Leeds and stuff. And he's, uh, But he goes into partnership, doesn't he, Marco, with this guy, Pino Rizzovato. Do you I know anything loved, about him? I love this story of Pino Rizzovato. In fact, in fact, the first time you told me off, I wrote this article about 10 years ago, and, and I bumped into a professor at the, at the coffee show, and he says... It's a bit dodgy. And I think I was so desperately looking for a, show, a new angle on this. But there was this amazing story of this Italian dental equipment salesman who was going all around the country selling his dental equipment and spitting the coffee on the floors from these like lion's corners and the, the sort of coffee shop. Coffee shops are nothing new. We've had them for years. Yeah. Tea shops, coffee shops. You know, these things have been in the UK for a long, 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 long time. We used to have a, a, a chain called Coffee Inn and Cardamom. And they didn't like teenagers very much, you know, to be honest. They were, they, this is why the teenagers all ended up in Soho. And uh, Pina Rizzovato took on the Gadja um, distributorship. And he opened this first um, shop that um, Jonathan was saying, the, the famous um, Mocha Bar. And he got a famous architect called Jeffrey Crockett to design it. And it was all properly done from the, the you know, the Italians invested in it and um, English architects did it. And it was a big, big, big thing. And I never knew that this was such an amazing launch in, into London. And then all the, all the different coffee shops came after that. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. The Coffee Table with Lamazocco Espresso Machines, handmade in Florence since 1927. What I'm really interested in is this, this word keeps coming up again and again, which is mocha. And you've just said to me, mocha bar. Now, now, as I look around your kitchen, Marco, again, the wizard of coffee in my life, Marco, is showing me something that, uh, of course, could only probably happen in Marco's kitchen. But Marco, tell me a little bit what I'm, what I'm seeing here, because I can see an upside down iron and an old mocha pot 
ready to boil. Now, tell me about what an iron and a mocha pot have to do with this. Well, I mean, in 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 uh, to support the authenticity of this, I knew the professor was coming today, so I wanted to be completely authentic. And we're doing a proper 1930s, 1940s Neapolitan coffee. And in, 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 it's perfectly acceptable to use your iron for making a mocha. Obviously, for a Robusta coffee, you want to have it set on linen, linen cotton for the higher end of the scale and if i had a nice little you know delicate uh, ethiopian i'd probably go on to polyester or something and liquid what, what do you mean by that i don't understand what you mean the by temperature we have oh, a higher temperature oh, for robusta iron. and a lower temperature for a nice delicate arabica so look it's starting to come up already i've got it i've got it on linen so the iron is on linen setting, which yeah. is hot. And look at that mocha pot, it's flying. And it's boiling the water inside the mocha pot, which forces the water through the coffee. But what is it? It's like a, it's like a coffee coin inside there, isn't it? Yeah. How does a mocha pot work? Mocha pot is exactly like the siphon that you just saw. It heats the water in the bottom and it sends it up through the top. But did you see how quickly that came yeah. up? I yeah. mean, we literally put the mocha pot on top and it almost came up. For authenticity, we should have cut the plug off and shoved the wires in the wall with, with some safety matches. As you, as you would see in the true Neapolitan flats. But um, just for this, uh, you, you can make a, a coffee out of anything. And the mocha pot, it just shows you, this is the original camping coffee. All these people going AeroPress camping, I never understood that. You know, all you need is a mocha pot. So a mocha pot, is a little, was it two shot, maybe three shots in there? You put it on top of an iron, boiled it. Yeah. The coffee looks fantastic. And you switch the iron off at the plug and, uh, yeah, and that's it. Yeah, it's from Woolworths design, so I can't take it back. All right. <laughs> So there's your espresso, there's your mocha. But what a story, Mark. I mean, you know, there's so much, uh, you know, kind of authenticity in the story that you're telling about, you know, the experiences that you've had with coffee. Hearing about someone making coffee on an iron first blow your mind or, or did you just accept it and say, yeah, it's Neapolitan? Well, as soon as I saw it, I tried it. And yeah. it's actually incredibly simple. I mean, if you're in a hotel room, you know, this is hotel room. I'm, I'm, I can dry clean a whole suit with a hairdryer. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we've all been there, <laughs> you know, the hotel room, uh, you know, if you've, yeah. lived, if you've spent some time in a hotel room, <laughs> you end up doing all these things. But no, I think it's, it's wonderful how you can make a pretty good coffee anywhere, mm. you know. I mean, I'm always, I'm always, people always ask me to produce a coffee, no matter what I am. So, yeah, that's, that's a very, very big way of making coffee in Italy. The mocha is, is, is a really difficult thing to explain. I don't yeah. think it's even took off that much. I think everyone accepts it, but I don't think everyone... I don't think it's a... In this country. In this country, no, it's in not been... Can I, I say this? I mean, you should give your tips about how to use the mocha mocha, but can I give one? Mm. Okay, because it's the very simplest one, and that is that you must always never fill above the valve. The valve okay, so there's that little uh, looks like a screw in the bottom. It's the open valve. Mm. Just when you're filling your water, never fill above the valve. Yeah. Okay, because yeah. uh, otherwise you're never going to get the coffee. You could go bang. You mm. could go bang. Mm. Uh, but you tell me, what do you do about heaping your coffee in? Do, are you are you a compressor or are you a just leave it as it is? No, you know, I was taught by Lena, who's 106 this year. And she told me that you put your coffee in and you, 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 you tamp it slightly with the back of a spoon and then she puts a cross on it. And then oh, I found okay. out later it was more of a religious thing. I was going to say, <laughs> that sounds very religious to me. But then everything, you've got to remember where I'm from in Italy. You know, my, my, um, when we talk about dates and stuff, they say, oh, we, we, we make um, limoncello, we make uh, nocino on San Pietro and we use the saints days. So we don't use the almanac. So everything is like we plant this on this saint's day mm. and we pick this on this saint's day and, and everything has to fit within that. So I can understand how the coffee stuff ended up like that as well. 
But this is a classical thing. The more you use this pot, the better the coffee tastes. Mm. This tastes disgusting because I haven't used it for a year. Mm. I will never get a good coffee out of this in a million years until I make at least 10 coffees out of mm. it. You know, it, it doesn't um, it doesn't it doesn't make good coffee unless you're using it constantly. And the and the mocha pot is it's very continental, isn't it? And I, and and I've seen some of them in Spain. The French maybe use them a little bit, but it is very Italian, isn't yes. it? This yeah, mocha yeah, pot. yeah. It yeah. goes back to the 30s. Uh, it's designed in the 30s, and also the, it's a great material because it's aluminium, and that was a big thing that they wanted to do in the 30s because aluminium you could make within Italy itself, so it was very autarkic fitted with the with the regime with the, with the Mussolini regime but it takes regime. yeah absolutely but when it takes off though is the 50s mm. it's in the 50s that you know the, the the basically 50s and 60s is when Italy really actually becomes the coffee culture that it is today the mocha pot goes round the coffee bars really explode in number at that time so that's when we get almost this kind of the kind of coffee culture that we now think of as like the typical Italian coffee culture is very much just that post-war era uh, when really the whole country changes. You know, it's a, it's a country that becomes mm. a sort of a country of little, where it becomes a country of towns rather than of, of countryside. And it becomes a country where, you know, people pop into their local bar to get the coffee because the coffee from the espresso machine is different from what they make in the house. It's two different kinds of coffee, you know. To me, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it is that it's domestic and professional. When we're talking about the mocha, we're talking about the domestic. Oh, yeah. And that's 970% of the Italian market. But when we're talking about the espresso machine, and the other, remember that the price of espresso was set by law in Italy. When, they, when, they, when it went up uh, 1p, they, they flattened Rome. Oh, it's horrible coffee. Sorry, I don't use this very much. Sorry, Jonathan just <laughs> yeah, drank some of this. Yeah. Some of the mocha made such it's a It's not one of your best, man. <laughs> no. However, yeah, no, that law is an interesting law because um, the law comes in in 1911 and it's actually, it's, a, it's an emergency law and it's brought into control a lot of prices of common goods. And one of the goods is coffee without service, a cup of coffee without service. That's literally how it's written. And so when you go into an Italian bar and you realise that, you know, you've got to stand at the bar, that's you without service. You go sit down, you're going to pay a lot more for your coffee. Um, I'm sure. And I like that. And yeah, it's, I it's like that. Way. I and still do, do that. that. Don't you? You still do it. Tell yeah. us about it in Termini. We do this in Bar Termini because obviously it's a tiny bar and we can't possibly have everyone come in and sit down. So it's, we, we, we do a one pound, bar, one pound shot at the bar. And if you sit down, it's, although it's £2.50, it's a bigger shot. It's a, it's a 20 gram shot. If you sit down, it's a 10 gram shot at the bar. And we like this kind of thing. What we found was even, even on a very busy day, we still have about 80 people coming in and just having a shot at the bar. And they average about 22 seconds, which is sort of a pound of profit we'd never normally take. And all night we have bouncers, doormen and people popping in to grab this coffee. But what we like about this, it also deterred chains from going into Italy. This made it unattractive for the big chains to go and open lots of coffee shops in Italy because of this discount, yeah. this discounted I mean, coffee. So what, what's interesting about that is that um, originally that law is used, what it does is it sets the maximum price of, a, of coffee, right? Mm -hmm. Of a coffee at the bar, no service. Uh, and you can imagine that probably originally quite a lot of the bar proprietors were opposed to it. But what happened after time is actually the Bar Proprietor Association decided themselves what that price was. And by keeping it low, mm. that meant that, yeah, no big chains would go in there. Because you think about it, there are big Italian coffee companies, mm. but none of them run chains. And they don't run them because there's no margin in it. Mm. And there's no margin because that price stays low. So mm. as you say, you know, what are, we, what are we on now? Probably a euro, euro ten for an espresso, yeah. maybe? Yeah. 
Yeah, still cheap. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in England, you have people charging three, four quid for for a espresso that's really costing them twenty p, and it's just a. Sh- but that's that's the story we're telling because I've jumped off the fact that you are telling me about the mocha bar opening yeah, in 1952 yeah, yeah. in London Sorry. to go to this. No, no, it's, it, I just I, I'm just fascinated by this <laughs> word mocha because we we talked about it through the ages. Yeah. Mocha again and again has given respect. And that's really interesting in as much that we keep going back to Mocha being the city in Yemen, which unfortunately now is under some heavy uh, regime and there's a lot of fighting going on. There's a famine in Yemen at the moment. But historically, coffee's come through that city and has been given the respect. So the Italians have named it the Mocha Pot. And now we've got the Mocha Bar in London, 1952. The Mocha Bar is spelt like the Mocha Pot, whereas Mocha is the chocolate and the port are spelt differently with CH. Right. So there is this sort of difference in the spelling. I Mm. think it sounds the same. I think that's just about different languages, to be honest, because, I mean, you know, the correct word for Mocha, the port, would be Al Mocha. No. Yeah, I mean, so it's just the way that we've we've yeah. we've done it one way in English, and they've done it another way in Italy, and, and turned it mm. like that. But but you're right; it's all about respect, and so it should be. Yeah. So we, so we've got the mocha bar in Soho. We've got Bar Italia in Soho. Two Italian styled coffee yeah. bars that change coffee drinking in the inner city urban lifestyle of London. Yeah, that change, and um, particularly like we say, that change it. I suppose. It starts as quite a, a, a sort of a, an in thing, a trendy thing. It becomes very much a young person's thing. Uh, and you get some weird stuff as well, like the, the, there's a the famous picture of the mocha bar of this guy having a shave at the bar. And this is because he's ordered a cappuccino. And in, in, in Italy, the idea is that you would order a drink and it comes, you know, ready to drink. Okay. It's at the right temperature, right? But, you know, this is Britain, so you make it as hot as absolutely possible. So this guy says, I could have had a shave by the time my cappuccino was ready to drink. And they thought, yeah, photo op. So the next day he's back in, they've got him a shaving brush and he's having his shave and they're serving up the the cappuccino. So, yeah, it does. It changes our whole concept of what of what we think of as a coffee, particularly as what you might be given as a coffee outside the home. That big separation between Mm -hmm. this is coffee. This is what you drink at home. But hey, you've come out. This is a bit of a special coffee, a bit different. Now, we've got 20 minutes or so in this episode to talk through the timeline between Soho lifting up these sort of Italian coffee houses where it's serving a quick espresso to people in in, in the city. And yet, coffee's still not that big a deal, is it? Because I know that in 20 years, between 1950 and 1970, nothing really lifts off. But I do know that the world's obviously changing because... America is just about to explode with coffee and coffee chains. Now, do we want to talk about what that timeline between the 50s and the 70s does with coffee before we really jump? Because I know 1971, which is the year I was born, which was a fabulous year, of course, for coffee. You know, this is a big deal, right? So, So anything we need to say for 20 years or do we need to talk about the 1970s? Well, I think what we need to say is actually, uh, in British terms, actually between about the 1960s and the 1990s, the most exciting thing that happened was that advert for Nescafe <laughs> Gold Blend. And other than that, no, we can skip the lot. We don't even need to go to the 1970s. I was, I, I was cognizant in the 1970s, and let me tell you, there was no good coffee then. No, no there was no good coffee. <laughs> we Mark, you were alive in the 70s, anything? Yeah? I was four. Yeah. 71 <laughs> is a fantastic year. I mean, you've got, you've got Starbucks kicking off in Pike, Square, in Pike Street Market in Seattle. Seattle but at the same time, Costa yeah. Coffee is starting. And it's Where really, did Costa start? Costa Coffee started in uh, Lambeth by... I think it was originally started by Bruno Costa, but he was allergic to the coffee powder. Sorry, Lambeth in London? Yeah. Oh, Costa's from London. Costa, 
Costa Coffee. Two brothers, Bruno and There Sergio. is a Costa yeah. Coffee in Genoa. It's not the same one. No. So Costa Coffee started in 71 by Bruno Costa. Bruno was the first brother to come over. And Bruno started doing the coffee, I believe this is the story, and he was allergic to the coffee dust. And so he brought his brother Sergio over. And I think Carlo came over as well. And each one of them has their own businesses. I think Bruno is Fine Italian Foods, the Italian catering uh, company. Um, one of them is Porcellana, which is the all the Italian restaurants have got the ashtrays and plates from the and the, the three brothers basically you could do a whole restaurant food, hardware, software, and coffee. Mm. And Sergio came over and became the real coffee uh, expert, and he would go round in a very clever man. He he would if he bought a coffee shop on a particular road and the dry cleaners came up, he'd buy it, and he'd made sure he'd rent it out as a dry cleaners, and he really. Was a very clever businessman, and he used to manipulate the property around him too. Made sure that there wasn't six more coffee shops coming down the road, and things like this. And it was even a case when we were young, we were growing up. When you were twenty-one, you almost Sergio almost offered you your coffee bar. You couldn't buy a Costa bar in those days for love nor money like you can now. In those days, Sergio had to almost give you the keys to one, and he set up a lot of young lads. A lot of my friends mm. were given coffee shops and stuff mm. at their time, and they got the keys. The Tanzis, the Del Poyos, the, all these different sort of Italian families in mm -hmm. London. Once they, as they get their 21 birthday, they got the keys to a Costa coffee shop. Mm. And it was in the good old days before Whitbread bought it and it turned into the sort of big thing that it is so, now. So was Costa coffee in its original guise good? I don't think anyone thought it was a really high quality coffee. It was, you know, Formula One. There was two blends, I think it was Formula One, Uno and Mocha Italia. And they, they were all right, you know, it, 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 in the era. They were great quality coffees in the era. Uh, there was always a little stone or something to push through the grinder and give it a slap every now and again or a tweak, you know. It was a... It was never the highest quality, but it was just, it was the right thing at the right time. And it was playing the game. It was very, very, you know, involved with the Italian church and the Italian community. And mm. there's every Italian in London have a story of, mm. you know, how how it worked within our community, mm. you know. Because so, I think the thing to say is that at this time, really, what's going on with, with, with Costa and, and it's actually mostly it's supplying Italian sort of uh, restaurants, yeah. trattoria, that kind of thing. It's not really, so it's not coffee shop chain at that time. It's really much more about being a coffee supplier uh, and suppliers. Yeah. You know, if you look through the, the, the period, it's very much almost like a sort of a, it's wholesaling to the, to, to the coffee bars. But the, um, it's not really until much later that they go into to, to retail and then go into sort of that service thing. Because I can really remember actually this in kind of one of my first impressions of, wow, something's happening in the UK, was 1992, because they opened an outlet on Euston Station in 1992. I would walk, I used to, uh, I was teaching at the University of London, University College, and we would all walk from University College up to the station and down to this little coffee shop, just because it was so magic, because it was like, my God, all this coffee that I've been drinking in Italy, I've never been able to find in the UK. Here it finally is, you know. And then three years later, Whitbread buy it, two years later, mm. I forget, and um, turn that idea, which they'd just started into this sort of idea and, and blow it up. And obviously what they'd been doing was they'd seen what had happened in America with Starbucks and um, they wanted to, to make sure they had a vehicle to do that over here. But the problem is the Italian mentality is wrong because 1978, Costa Coffee is opening its first store in Vauxhall Bridge Road. And this was the, you've got to remember at the time, all us Italians at the time could not understand owning two shops. I was—I could only be in one shop. Why would I have two? 
You know, if I've got three sons, I can only have three shops. And, and the Starbucks mentality of everything that was going on in that time was uh, one person could have 10 shops. We couldn't understand that. How do you try, how do you go on holiday? I mean, as it is, I don't think the Costa family have ever been on holiday together because someone always had to look after the shops, you know? So they, they um, it was a very different mentality. And so that first sort of chain, the, the, the first coffee shops were all franchises. They were all families taking on a franchise of Costa. Once Whitbread came along, they started to open their own coffee shops because they had data. They could look at London and they knew the volumes all around the different postcodes. So they knew that this guy was buying coffee and he was doing 24 kilos a day. Right, they're gonna put a shop there, aren't they? So they looked at their basic, their, their, their roasting sales. They looked at what, what the volumes were and they basically put shops opposite all their customers and they lost all their customers overnight, but they didn't care because they opened their own shops. And there was that transition point when they emerged from the coffee shops of the franchisees to them doing their own coffee shops. And that was a real, that's what we're used to seeing now, these chains. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. The Coffee Table with Lamazocco Espresso Machines, handmade in Florence since 1927. There was a real beast that arrived, wasn't it, from the West, which was Starbucks. I mean, I remember London before Starbucks, mm. and, and it was a place of, yeah, you could probably get a really good coffee in a restaurant, but other than that, you'd have to go to Bar Italia, or, or you know, there would be specific places you could go and get a really nice coffee. And then comes this, this just this beast, I can't even remember the first Starbucks that, that arrived in London. Uh, perhaps you do, and, and perhaps you can sing either the praises or, or the, the positives or negatives for, for such a big company coming into, into Europe or, or to London. But did it do us good or did it do us bad? And, and what is this sort of now, this multi... I mean, this is a huge company, surely, Starbucks, and it's global. Good thing or bad thing for coffee? But from my point of view, we started off with a very good thing. You've got to remember that they taught people to take away. Before Starbucks came in, Nobody knew about takeaway. I mean, in Italy, they're only just getting it now. It's not an easy thing to understand. So the whole thing about going to, you know, Starbucks came to the UK, they went up to places like Northampton and they started showing them that you could take away. For the, for the coffee industry, we had a boost. I'm, we, we all had a lift because of this sudden interest in coffee. So Starbucks never hurt anybody. They, they, they widened the market. They introduced people. Look, I was selling the most expensive coffee in, in England at the time. People weren't gonna go from tea to me. They had to transition through a Starbucks for a couple of years before they understood the difference between higher quality and lower quality. So it was a transitional period and it taught people to take away coffee, it taught people how to order it, it made people feel like experts because of the way that, do you remember when they started as well, Jonathan, how clever they were opening four stores at once on a corner and all this sort of tricks that they did with marketing, like four corners they would have boarded up. On a Monday morning, all four store Starbucks would open on the same time in that they did these stunts in America all the time. People were like, my God, there's four Starbucks suddenly. And it was very clever what they did, you know? And if we were to, Jonathan, think of history, let's, let's fast forward 100 years and look back at now with Starbucks being as strong and, as, and making a big global statement around coffee. How would it be seen as this sort of trend? Because we've transitioned, and you, you've looked back over thousands of years, and we've come 400 years, 200 years, 100 years, 50 years. 
now we're into you know like you say marco everyone's used to taking uh, takeaway mm. coffee everyone's used to knowing the image of starbucks and then costa and then other coffee houses but surely this is it, it's a global phenomenon around coffee yeah it's a global phenomenon around coffee and it's a i mean if you want the biggest contribution of starbucks i think is to have made people rethink the notion of coffee coffee is not any more a sort of you know how cheap can we get it it's your everyday sort of don't think about it have a coffee it's like coffee is somewhat of a premium good a lifestyle good that was what starbucks <coughs> changed and i think that's what creates the situation for everybody else because once as you say as marco says once people start thinking about coffee is not necessarily uh, you know, as being something that's a high can, can be a high quality product, then they can start learning to maybe go and get his coffee or go down to the specialty store and watch people do the amazing brewing that they do. So I think that's what's really transitioned it. And it is a global thing because, as you rightly say, what's happened is that culture and that sort of coffee shop culture that, you know, the coffee shop that they've developed, that culture, that's the culture that's spread around the world. That's the culture that lots of people aspire to. And while we may think we're now moving through the, the levels beyond that, there are plenty of places in the world where that's still the reference point. And, you know, to get there, that's when you've arrived. So that's really driving the market. And that has to be positive, I think, in the end. I think Starbucks is still very strong in Docklands. It's just a sort of 1990 Sex in the City kind of place. You know, it's all sort of stuck. They're still doing big cups and syrups and stuff. But also remember what they did. They gave you an atmosphere that my customers were laughing when Starbucks came. They're buying sofas. They won't last two minutes. And all my customers who had plastic fixed seating or, or, or different things, they looked at Starbucks and said, they're crazy. They're spending 250. Starbucks bought a chain of better coffee shops. When they bought Ali and Scott uh, Svensson's yeah, um, Seattle. Seattle Coffee, I think that was a much better um, concept for the UK, for London. I think it was better than Starbucks. They bought them and then they scooped them all out with a spoon, which I thought was crazy. They paid about a quarter of a million pounds for each site. They might as well have bought a, a chain of boots or something and scooped it out with a spoon. Mm -hmm. To buy a chain of coffee shops and then close them all and turn them into other coffee shops, I thought was silly. They should have just bought 10 shops mm -hmm. and did that. But they did this and they created an atmosphere and people, what they, got, what they understood was that the English people, they like the safety of a chain. They like to know how long it's going to take, how much it's going to cost and what I got to do. And they like that safety. And so you would go for a meeting somewhere you weren't familiar. And you go, oh, there's a Nero. Oh, there's a cost. You knew exactly what, how to, how it works, how long it will take and what it will cost. Mm -hmm. And that's what people like here in the UK is the safety of that chain and, and safety. Of, you well, know what's going to happen. I think we can even be a bit a bit nicer than that and say that I mean it wasn't just the safety it was the guarantee that actually it would be okay mm. and that actually most UK shops prior to that weren't really giving you that guarantee were they you know I mean so uh, again that's that's created a, a bar which now is if you like your entry bar so you've got to do better than that now mm. to survive as a, as a as a coffee shop and um, again I think that's actually a really good thing Hmm. But I mean, that is a, it is a very British thing. We like chains. Yeah, we really do because we believe in those guarantees. And generally, what we've had, I think, probably uh, be interesting to get your perspectives on it. But you know, we also talk about a service revolution over the last twenty years, and you know, the chains are part of that, really, aren't they? Hmm. You know, so now you do. I mean, I know in in your bar, you know, the service level is, is phenomenal. Hmm. But I've also been in plenty of UK coffee shops before, or cafes, or whatever before we had uh, Starbucks. The service levels were just appalling. You know, you felt like, um, you know, as a customer, you were the worst person in the store. 
Mm. Well, there's no way that that can work, you know, and that does change. And it's right back to your sofas, you know, let's think about the customers. Mm. What might they want? Now, we've come through nearly 1,500 years of history in only three episodes, and I congratulate you both on being able to run through so many dates and so many points in history where coffee has impacted on the culture of, of, of humans, really. And we've ended up with coffee on every high street in the Western world, telling us a story of consistency, of get a boost here, you know what's coming, you know how much we're going to pay for it. So it's been homogenized and pasteurized. What would be really good is as we move through the episodes of uh, The Coffee Table with Food FM, we'll be looking at seed to cup, we'll be looking at speciality coffees, we'll be looking at water, we're looking at roasting, we're going to look at mm. bean size, I mean everything. But, but I think these three episodes have been a really good, well, snapshot in, in describing where coffee's come from and where we are at the moment with it. Uh, I'd like to look into the future, but we'll follow that in another episode. But for now, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on the coffee table. Would you like to finish on a, a, a number of points you'd like to make about coffee before we sign out? Well, do you know what? I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of your series, but as I won't be here, I'm just going to make one point. <laughs> okay. And that is that, uh, as you say, you know, we've moved through the whole history of how coffee has become this more accepted and now sort of in one sense homogenized standards have really improved consistency and so forth but actually there's this other thing which is great and that's the diversity of coffee and now we can talk about that when we talk about specialty we can talk about different origins you can talk about these different brewing methods so i'm looking forward to hearing you guys do all of that uh, and in the meantime i hope you'll come listen if your listeners are interested in more coffee history do come and have a listen to our coffee our history of coffee podcast or read my book coffee a global history Thank you, Jonathan. Marco, that's been good fun. Three episodes in the history of coffee. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Mm. Um, how are you feeling before we sign off? I feel that we haven't scratched the surface, really. I mean, this is such a big subject. We have to take every little part of it as a show. And you say mm. roasting. Roasting mm. is a show. Mm. You know, every little bit of it can be a show. And so we, we just have to really decide the order we do it in and... and uh, and, and also, you know, what, what we're going to cover. But I think it's great to have people like Jonathan come in and, and really reinforce um, lots of the stuff we're talking about here. And, yeah, look forward to the next one, which I think might be... We've got the Mazzocco one coming yeah, up. We've yeah. got all sorts of different ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I think we just have to decide which one we're doing. Well, I'm uh, super interested in the fact that we've come through the history of it, but we haven't really covered truly what the coffee plant is. I really want to know how it gets from seed to leaf to bud, uh, you know, because the plant itself is obviously very magical because for it to have existed for so long and to influence so many people on the planet, obviously the coffee plant is something we need to focus on. Uh, I'd also like to talk about seed to cup. How does it get from the plant into the cup? I mean, there's so many things to discuss. But um, yeah, well, I'm Arthur Potts Dawson. This is Food FM and the coffee table will keep coming at you. Please follow us. Let us know what you think about it. Uh, Jonathan Morris, thank you so much for all of the time you've given us. The author of Coffee, A Global History and the creator of the podcast, A History of Coffee. You must follow Jonathan. Check him out on Instagram. You're in, you on Instagram, Jonathan? I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Coffee History JM. There we go. Okay. Thank you, Jonathan and Marco. I'll see you next time. See you soon. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. The Coffee Table with Lamazocco Espresso Machines, handmade in Florence since 1927.